Open your Bibles, please. Pastoral Epistle, 2 Timothy. Our scripture reading will be two um, this morning. 2 Timothy 3 and 2 Peter 1. There are Bibles in the back if you don't have one. If you don't own one, take it with you. I'm going to read the Word of God. And then we'll dismiss the kids. <coughs> Excuse me. 2 Timothy. Chapter 3, verse 12. Here the word of God. Indeed, all who desire to live godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived, but as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which were able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man or the woman of God may be equipped, complete equipped for every good work. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 16. <coughs> Excuse me. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was borne to him by majestic glory, quote, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the dawn, the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. May God and a, re, a blessing to the reading of his holy word this morning. So kids, you're dismissed. Keep your finger in those two passages of scripture. And we are in a series, a five-part series called The Five Solas. Now, as you see, we got a nice wooden pulpit. So I'm going to take you back today. It's not our usual sermons. We're doing expository preaching through books of the Bible, uh, which we normally do here at King Chapel. We're taking a break. We're doing a topical series. We don't do that often, but we do it from time to time. And it's going to feel like you're going back to school. If that's a problem for you, you're welcome. <coughs> but this topic is an important topic. It was October 31st. 1517, the Augustinian monk and priest and scholar, Martin Luther, approached the castle church in Wittenberg, or they say Wittenberg, W's are pronounced with V's, Wittenberg, Germany, and nailed his 95 theses to the castle door. He was calling for a theological public debate. It was not unusual to post theses to call for public debates, but context is important. You see, the Pope of Rome in 1515 commissioned the sales of indulgences that not only bestowed pardon for sins already committed, but they were licensed to commission for future transgressions as well. Who did they hire for this daunting task? A Dominican priest named Johann Tetzel. He was commissioned by the Archbishop of Mainz, Cardinal Albert Brandenburg, under whose authority Tetzel was really operating. And, and he was sent out on his all-in-all -all campaign to sell indulgences, indulgences. The purchase of an indulgence was a way to reduce your time in purgatory, sometimes hundreds of thousands of years, even as far as two million years. Purgatory is a place where you are purging the paying off of your punishment for your sins before you get to heaven. Indulgences could be full, which is called plenary, or partial remissions for punishment. And this 
indulgence was taken from what is called the treasury of merit. Treasury of merit. In fact, Albert, the Archbishop of Mance, the selling of indulgence helped him to pay off debts that he got himself into to become an archbishop. The treasury of merit, of course, was held in heaven. No place you could see it. The merits of Christ were there, the merits of Mary, the mother of Jesus, and the abundance of these merits from the martyrs and from the saints. The treasury was at the disposal of the Pope, the successor of Peter, the vicar of Christ, the very presence of Christ on earth. And this, this treasury was held in heaven, but the keys belonged to the Pope himself. He would distribute these monies, or these merits to those who would give money to the church. And at the time of the Reformation, indulgences broadened. It was not just for sins that you have done or will do. They broadened it and they said, listen, we'll give you an indulgence. We will, we will help purge Aunt Betty and Uncle Fred who already died, who are suffering in purgatory right now. If you pay a certain amount of money, they will be free. They will be sprung to heaven. Don't you love your grandmother? Can you hear her screaming in purgatory? Didn't she take care of you as a young boy, a young girl? One of the famous slogans that came from Johann Tetzel was this. As soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. Good wrap up. Here's where things blew up, though. Martin Luther knew about Albert. He knew about the 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 uh, um, the indulgences, but what he didn't know is that Pope Leo X in Rome had really commissioned this to take place. He he was he he, he allowed Albert to continue on his indulgence selling, but half of what was earned by Tetzel would go back to Rome directly to the Pope. He was raising money for his campaign to, re- to, um, to renovate St. Peter's Basilia, Basilica in Rome. Luther didn't know it at the time. In fact, uh, Frederick the Wise, he's the prince or the elector of Saxony, where Luther was a professor, had banned the sale of indulgences in Wittenberg. So people were leaving Wittenberg and going to see these other towns and hearing the preaching of Tetzel. And then coming back to Luther's church and saying, I don't need to repent. Look at this. I've got an indulgence. That was enough for Luther. The 95 Theses, a direct shot against the indulgences, was nailed to the door and then published in German and in Latin. And it sparked the Reformation, the protest, the Protestant movements that changed, I don't think we can really understand fully, the change it made to the world. We owe so much to the reformers, the men and women of those days who were reclaiming the gospel. It wasn't like we had no gospel till then. They were reclaiming the truth of the gospel that were hidden. Men and women who have served and, and, and worked hard at reclaiming the gospel is the reason why we have a Bible in our language. Is the reason why we sing corporately together. It's the reason that we now have Christ-centered expository preaching came back because of the Reformation. We've been celebrating. We, we did two book studies this, this, uh, this um, year. We've looked at the life of Luther on a movie, and now we're doing a five-part series on the five Latin phrases that emerged during the time of the Reformation. It is a summary of the Reformers' theological convictions in contrast to that that was taught in the Roman Catholic Church. They're called the five sola. Sola means only or alone. Charles, uh, excuse me, R.C. Sproul rightly says, it is no exaggeration to say that the eye of the Reformation tornado was this one little word, sola. Sola Scriptura, our topic, our topic for today. Scripture alone. Sola gratia, grace alone. Emphasize that grace is the cause of our salvation. Our rescue from the wrath of God is by grace alone. Sola gratia. Sola fide means by faith alone, through Christ alone. It's not about indulgences. It's through Christ. Solus Christos. Salvation is through Jesus alone on the cross, not through the mediatorial role of any 
Roman Catholic priest. And then soli deo gloria to the glory of God alone. Emphasize that the glory of God as the chief goal of all of life, particularly in the provision of our salvation, is really ultimately about the glory of God, incalculable worth of Christ. Our topic today is sola scriptura. The year is now 1521, four years later. Religious leaders gather together in what is known as the Diet of Worms. Again, the W's are V's. A diet is an assembly of religious leaders. Worms is the place in Germany where they got together in 1521 to discuss the teaching of Martin Luther. They had his work spread out before him and they called on Luther, recount, recant and renounce. Recant and renounce your teaching. It was there that Luther famously said this. Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust either the Pope, in the Pope, or in councils alone, since it is well known that they often erred and contradicted themselves, I am bound to the scriptures. I have quoted and my conscience is captive to the word of God. Thus I cannot and I will not recant anything since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand. May God help me. Amen. It was Luther also who would later say this. Whoever wants to hear God speak should read Holy Scripture. Luther was labeled a heretic. Johann Tetzel called for him to be burned at the stake. Burned like a stake. S-T-A-K-E, S-T-E-K, but he was to be burned alive, but he did not. He, 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 he was able to escape. And, and, and this doctrine of, of Scripture alone is simply this. Only Scripture, only Scripture is God's inspired word, the inerrant, sufficient, and final authority for the church. Or so Scripture is the teaching that the Bible is the only infallible or inerrant authority for Christian faith. It contains all the knowledge necessary for salvation and holiness. Like the reformers here at King Chapel, we believe in sola scriptura. But notice I did not say, and the reformers did not say, solo scriptura. As if there's no other truth in the universe. God has chosen different ways to communicate truth. Whether it's in creation, a providence, but the ultimate authority is in scripture. Now there are a lot of things that are true. That the Bible doesn't tell us about. The Bible doesn't tell us how long you're to keep your pasta going in the water. You've got to read the box. Or how to master calculus. There are other sources of truth, but ultimately God is truth. The Bible focuses on the truth that, that teaches us and tells us things we need to know in order to have a relationship with our creator God. To, have, uh, to know him, to, to understand his demands, his purposes, and ways, particularly in the way of salvation. The truth is not discovered through science or experience. I mean, the Bible touches on science, touches on, on, on history. And when it does speak of those things, it speaks truthfully and without error. But it's not a historical book in the sense that we think of history, just telling us what happens. It's not a science book. It is his story. The purposes of God. So the doctrine that the Bible is the ultimate authority in the, in the reformer days and what we'll call it today too is what's called a formal, the formal principle. In other words, without sola scriptura, you don't get the other five solas. It is in the scripture that we read grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. It's called a formal principle. Sola scriptura stands against in the reformer's day. The Roman Catholic Church, she taught that their tradition and councils are just as authoritative and binding, an infallible source of revelation, in par with Scripture. It doesn't mean that all tradition is bad. I, I think some people take that to the extreme. I, I, we're called on. We have what's known as orthodoxy. Sola Scriptura does not mean that we reject all church history, all tradition, all councils, all commentaries, just me and my Bibles, or the opinions of learned scholars. All those things have great value. We just don't dismiss and reject the wisdom passed down from generation to generation. However, we believe that those things, even as good as they are, can never be of equal value with the Word of God. Scripture stands supreme. It is the supreme court 
All the other things, whether statements of faith, traditions, church council, they are a lower court. Scripture alone is the final with no appeal. Scripture doesn't mean you get your Bible. Scripture alone, I go in my Bible, I, I just read it whenever I think it says. That's what it is. There's a place for orthodoxy. There's a place for things like church councils, as long as they come under Scripture. I mean, the church council of Nicaea 325 has great things to say about the deity of Christ. Or the council of Chalcedon, great things to say about the dual natures of Christ being fully God and fully man. But all that still comes under the Scripture. I say that because there are false teachers even in our post-modernity, our post-modern day, who are attacking orthodoxy. What's been true and believed and, and, and creeds for, for thousands of years, these young, cool, hip guys are trying to go against what's been taught for a long, long time. Guys like Rob Bell or Brian McLaren or Greg Boyd who teaches open theism, which is a, totally against Scripture. They attack the virgin birth. They say it's not important. They say hell is made up. They say that the work of Jesus Christ, his atonement on the cross, is nothing but child abuse. Cosmic child abuse, they call it. Ultimately, sola scriptura means that the scriptures are the very words of God to man. And there is no other writings in all the universe that you could say that about. That's sola scriptura. Four things. The first one's longer and then we'll cut them shorter as we go. But the first one is, is foundational. So we're going to look at the inspiration of Scripture. We're going to look at the authority of Scripture. We're going to look at the inerrancy of Scripture. And then the sufficiency of Scripture as we close. So number one, inspiration. When we talk about the inspiration of Scripture, we're talking about this miraculous phenomenon by which we have the Scriptures. It's not the fact that God has communicated his word to us, not that fact, but it's how, it's the process, it's the method by which God has given us his word. That's inspiration. So 2 Timothy, if you have your Bibles, look what it says. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God what, may be equipped or may be complete, equipped for every good work. Breathe out. Some of your translations say inspired. Inspired, not like, oh, I had a really good day and I have this beautiful poem I wrote for my wife. That's not what it means. Theos or theonoustos, two words, Greek words. Theos meaning God, noustos, breath. Literally, God breathed. He, he exhaled. It's the expiration of God that he breathed out his word. Just like when you speak and I speak and, and, and the continents and the syllables are driven out by our, by our breath through our lungs, the Bible says that God's word was spoken as he breathes his word into existence. It's not simply that God breathed into the writers or simply that he breathed into the writings themselves. The picture here is that these men wrote what they wrote was breathed out by God, the very breath of God. If you remember in Genesis we see in creation, God created Adam, and he did what? He breathed life into him, and God breathed life into his word. And just as God breathed life into Adam at creation, he breathed life into his word that we could be a new creation. Theologians call it the verbal plenary inspiration. Verbal meaning every word, word for word. The words that God wanted to reveal, those are the words chosen by the human authors. Plenary means complete. It's not just the red letters in your Bible. It's not just, wow, Jesus said this must be important. Every word God spoke from Genesis to Revelation. And you're thinking, really, Pastor, you really believe that? Do you really believe that God spoke and every word spoken from him came from him? Yep. And you know what else does? Let me tell you. Gospel according to Matthew, Jesus is in the wilderness. He hasn't eaten in 40 days. He's being tempted by the enemy. The devil's there tempting Jesus. After 40 days, the, the devil comes to him and says, while he's hungry, the scripture tells us, if you are the son of God, command the stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus said, it is written. Point to the Old Testament. It is written. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. 
It is written, perfect Greek tense, perfect tense. It's already written, already firm, nothing can change, it'll never be repeated. It's done. Jesus said, by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Pastor, do you believe that the scriptures God breathed comes from the mouth of God? Yes, so does Jesus. I'm in good company. In a world that's so vastly changing, in a world that is, that is unsure of itself, be it politically, financially, culturally, it is good that we have God's unchanging word. There's only one place we get God's breathed word, and that's the Bible. Every major cult, every major uh, cult began with their authoritative scripture and their authoritative interpretation of scripture. That what they do is they take the Bible and they come over the Bible and their writings and, and their, their understandings rather than under the scriptures. That's what they do. That's what cults do. If you're a Jehovah Witness, you got Watchtower, Bible and Tract Society to help you understand. If you're a Mormon, you got the doctrine of the pearl of great price. If you're a Catholic, you have traditions of the church. Only the Bible is breathed out by God. Everything else is beneath it. Everything else interpreted in the light of Scripture. The imposters will say, okay, if you want to understand what that says, you have to read this. This, this will teach you. That's how you know it's a false religion. For, uh, in 2 Peter, if you have a Bible, in 2 Peter, chapter 1, I want to show you something else we call inspiration. In 2 Peter, we're going to look at this verse again, but 2 Peter, in just verse 21, I just want to point something out. It says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along, undermark that in your Bible, carried along by the Holy Spirit. New American Standard has moved by, carried along or moved by. It's the Greek word pharaoh. It means to be driven. It's a Nordic, it's a, it's a sailing term to describe the wind blowing into a sail. And we see that in Acts chapter 27. Paul is on a ship and the south wind is blowing gently. And they're supposing, it says, that they obtained their purposes and they were weighing anchor to sail to Crete, close to the shore. But, verse 14 of chapter 27, the book of Acts. But soon a tempestuous wind came called the Northeastern and it struck down from the land. It came onto the, uh, uh, the sea. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind... You can see the picture here. We gave way to it and were driven along. We dropped the sails and the boat went wherever the wind took it. That's the picture. Like the ship that gave way to the wind, the human authors were consciously involved in the writing process, but behind the process, God carried them along to ensure that the end result of the word of God was the what God wanted to say. God spoke through them. He carried them along and spoke the word of God. The supernatural work of the Holy Spirit in which he superintended over the human authors so that even though we have different books of the Bible and we have different, even the four gospels, we talk about the four gospel accounts, different personalities, different perspectives, God used the personalities but oversaw the process. That's why only one of the four gospel accounts you have, you have in the gospel that Peter cut an ear off of the high priest's servant. Only one of them says that Jesus kneeled down, picked up the ear, and healed him. Which one? The doctor. Luke wrote it. Because he probably thought, man, that was pretty cool. I mean, I'm in a med school. I never saw that before. Paul is a, is a, is a, is, is a scholar and quotes Greek poets. Not that they're robots, but God used their personality and breathed his word to us. Let me just say one more thing as we move to the next point. In 2 Timothy 3.16, which I read already, contextually speaking, when he says all scriptures God breathed, Timothy, contextually, is speaking about the New Testament. That's true. But there are places in the New Testament where the New Testament writers are pointing to the scripture of the New Testament and calling the holy writings Scripture as falling under the same category as the Old Testament so that the Old Testament and the New Testament are the sacred writings, are the scriptures. Second Peter 3, he says, Peter's writing, and count, he says, count the patience of our Lord as salvation to those, uh, you could keep it in context, uh, to those who are perishing, and, and we won't get into all that, but let me just read this to you. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation just as our brother, 
our beloved brother Paul also wrote you. So Paul's writing. It's right, Paul is writing to the wisdom that was given to him, and he does in all his letters. Paul is writing as wisdom as he does in all his letters when he speaks on these matters. Then Peter writes, there are some things in them that are hard to understand. So if you're like, yo, I don't understand what this is saying in Scripture, neither did Peter, so you're in good company. He says, the ignorant and the unstable twisted to their own destructions as they do the other Scriptures. The other writings of Paul were keeping as Scripture. Similarly, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 18, Paul quotes Jesus' words from Luke chapter 10, verse 7, and calls them Scripture. Galatians chapter 1, Peter makes it clear that he did not receive what he is writing from man, nor was it taught by man, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ himself. So both the Old Testament and the New Testament are breathed out by God. And therefore, because it is inspired by God, the word of God is also carries with it the authority of God. It just flows with it. The authority of Scripture is grounded in the inspiration of Scripture. Sola Scriptura acknowledges that there are other authorities for Christians, right? There are authorities that we have to follow and listen to. You can't get pulled over in a, in a 40 mile an hour zone doing 65 and go, Yo, officer, Sola Scriptura, man. Like, like I, I don't see anywhere in here that you can give me a ticket. He's going to say, We'll see you in court. Sola Scripture means that we come under the authority of Scripture alone. That a Scripture alone is the final authority. It's the authority that governs and rules all other authorities. Dr. Matthew Barrett wrote this. I thought this was pretty good. He writes this. We could say that while church tradition and church officials play a ministerial role, Scripture alone plays a magisterial role. This means that all the other authorities are to be followed only inasmuch as they align with Scripture, submit to Scripture, and are seen as subservient to Scripture, end quote. You see, Rome claimed that the authority of the Scripture was derived from the church. The Reformers claimed that the authority of Scripture is derived from the divine inspiration of Scripture. The word of God is authoritative by the very nature it is. God breathes. It doesn't mean that there are other authorities or church authorities. Nor does it mean you got your Bible, you go figure out by yourself. Rejecting all other instructions by gifted teachers. That's not what it means. However, all authorities, all other authorities, even if what they teach is valid, are still fallible people instructing us, including me. Search the scriptures. Everything is subordinate to the teaching of Scripture, which alone is our authority. The Reformers rejected the hierarchical nature of the church, where the, where the Pope and his, his papal bull, they call it, his dictates, rule and tradition many times and oftentimes superseded the clear teaching of Scripture. So when you take tradition and you want to bring it to an equal plane, one's going to give. Because tradition in the magisterial, magisterial role was over. They were, clearing, they were teaching things that were contradictory to Scripture, like purgatory, like merit gained by you in order to be right with God. So let's look. I want to show you something in Second Peter. That was our second verse that we read. Peter's writing to a persecuted church. Nero's in power. People are dying everywhere. They're getting persecuted. And Peter wants to write to them this hope that he has. He would die soon after this letter. And he wants the church to be encouraged that someday Jesus is going to return. Someday all the suffering you have endured will be uh, done and you will go into eternity with a new heaven and a new earth and in the glory and the presence of God. That's the context. How does he know that? Look at 2 Peter chapter 1. <clears throat> he tells them, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths. We're not making this stuff up. When we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when we received, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and, and the voice was born to him 
by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son whom I well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice from heaven, for we were with him, Jesus, on the holy mountain. The Apostle Paul is recalling a day, a day in which he went up to the mountain with Peter. Uh, it was Peter, James, and John. They went up to this mountain, and the transfiguration of Christ took place, Mark chapter 9. We saw it. We were eyewitness of his majesty, his, his honor and glory on that mountain experiences. We have firsthand knowledge of that. We saw this glory, this intrinsic glory of Jesus just pour out from, his, from in him. A glow is so bright. Read the text in Mark. But notice now in verse 19 what he says. Even though I was there, I saw it. We're eyewitnesses. And we have the prophetic word, the word of God, more fully confirmed. To which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the dawn days, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Do you catch what he's saying? Do you see what he's saying? We have something more sure, more reliable, more confirmed, more than the eyewitness accounts. What is it, Peter? What's more stable? Verse 21. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Don't miss that. Men spoke where? From God. That's authority. God is speaking, and the principle that, that Peter is saying is, whether it's miracles, whether experience, whether it's church council, whether it is, it is uh, you know, some teacher who is, who's charismatic or whatever it is, what's more sure? Scripture. Even then, the things that I see, even the things that I've witnessed, we have something more reliable, Scripture. It has the final authority. It's unmovable, unchanging, and trustworthy. The authority, listen, the authority and the character of the Bible is as strong as the authority and trustworthiness of the one who wrote it. God's word is a reflection of God himself. And if God can be trusted, and he can, then there's very good reason to trust his word. The word of God is not just words on a page, but it carries the authority of the one who's speaking it. Like a father to a son who says, don't do this. He carries that authority. Jesus himself said in John 10 that scripture cannot be broken. He said in Matthew 5, truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter, a stroke, an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Heaven and earth will pass away, chapter 24 of Matthew, but my words will not pass away. Someone once counted that there are 3,000 ways in which 3,000 times, thus saith the Lord, God is speaking. Now, listen carefully. The word of God reveals the very nature of God. It is spoken by God, and therefore, it carries his authority. And I I want you to listen. Just listen to, I'm going to read to you Psalm 19. And I just want you to listen to the adjectives, okay, about the word of God. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord, the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. What is, what is the psalmist talking about? He's talking about the word, and he's using adjectives like perfect, sure, right, pure, just, and, and righteous. Who else is described like that in Scripture? God himself. God himself, the very word that is spoken, reveals who he is, and behind every word stands the one who speaketh. God's word is breathed out, and it carries his authority, which brings us to the next point, because if God's breath breathes out Scripture in, it has his authority, it can't be with error. It can't be. It's important to bear in mind that belief in inerrancy is keeping with the character of God. If God is true, hey Mike, can you put the AC up? If, if God is true, and he is, and if God's breathed out the scriptures, and he did, then scripture must, is the product of the God breathing, and it also too must be true. So inspiration speaks of authority, and it speaks of infallibility. Listen to the psalmist, Psalm 119. All your words are true. 
character of God. The Bible says that God, in God there is no lie. In God there is no falsehood. He reveals himself as a trustworthy God and therefore all he says is trustworthy. It's not that God speaks the truth and therefore he's true. It's that God is true and therefore speaks the truth. It's the character of God. It's the very character of God. He is the original fountain of truth. John 17, 17, Jesus' high priestly prayer. Sanctify them in the truth, what? Thy word is truth. Psalm eighteen thirty. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. Titus. Paul. Titus 1, 1 through 3. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of faith of the elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords to godliness and hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the age began, and at the proper time manifested his word, why? Through the preaching with which I've been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. You see the word, you see the preaching, you see the command given to Paul to go and preach the word. Jesus himself, many times in the New Testament, pointed to Old Testament narrative stories as being absolutely historical and trustworthy. Your professor in your college or those people that you maybe read, they'll tell you that uh, Jonah's a make-believe story, no such person as Adam. Jesus believed it. Jesus pointed to Jonah, pointed to Adam, and pointed to many of the Old Testament prophecies and narratives because they pointed to him. Matthew 5, do not think I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Paul Feinberg, he's a late professor of the Systematic Theology of Trinity Evangelical uh, Divinity School, said this about inerrancy. (coughs) Inerrancy means that when all the facts are known, the scriptures in the original autographs and properly interpreted will be shown to be wholly true in everything they affirm. I've had people tell me, you know, you believe the Bible's true? I said, yeah, I believe, I, believe it, I believe it's without error. It's, it's infallible, yes. Like, really? Oh, 300 years ago, everybody around the church will all talk about how the earth was flat. You know, they took this verse and they said that the earth was flat. Now we found it's wrong. I'm like, that was not the word of God's problem. That's the one who interpreted it. When rightly interpreted, understood, God cannot be shown as a lie or an error. It can't be. So he says, we've shown to be wholly true at everything they affirm, whether this has to do with doctrine or morality or with social, physical, or life science itself, end quote. Here's the deal, family. When you believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, I believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, taking that for what it is, uh, Ryrie points it out. He says, truth can and does include approximations. Free quotations, languages of appearances, and different accounts of the same event as long as they do not contradict, end quote. This is what happens. This is what happens. Maybe you've been in circles, you've heard this too. Well, one gospel account says that uh, when Jesus rose from the dead, there was an angel sitting on one side. And you read another gospel account and it says two angels were there. Well, which one is it? One or two? I say both. If I told you yesterday during our festival time that Ricky was here, Pastor Ricky was here, and we were talking and working and doing stuff, and it was, it just, well, he, he just did a great job. And then I talked to somebody else, and I say, Ricky and Katie were here, and it was such a good job. They worked such as a good team. Did I lie to the first person? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I just shared more with the second person. So we talk that way. Scripture talks that way. It doesn't contradict it, it, it sucks in the same account from different angles, from different perspectives, without contradiction. Do you realize this? If the word of God is not infallible, if it's not inerrant, if that's true, the promises that you cling to, you know those verses that you love? Those verses that, Lord, you'll never leave me nor forsake me, or whatever verse it may be, whether a verse of Scripture, if God's word is not infallible, you lose your assurance. How do you know? Everything you cling to fall apart, falls apart. How do you know for sure that Jesus Christ died for your sins and was buried and rose again on the third day? Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, it's according to the Scripture. 
If the book is not true, and not without errors, we don't have. If the book is not true, and it has errors, there's no assurance that God's word is trustworthy. If I began, let's say one day I said, I'm going to write a biography of my life. I'm going to start with where I'm at now, work my way back. And I'm like, well, I'm the lead pastor of King's Chapel. Um, I'm six foot four, 245 pounds, and I'm 29 years old. <laughs> You'd be like, don't listen to anything that guy says because he's lying. Relationships, you know if you're married, are built on what? Trust. God's word is no different. If God's a trustworthy God and he is not a God who lies and he is truth, then what he says will be true. And you can have an assurance of what he says because what he says is backed by his authority. There's no difference between the character that we have and truthfulness, even more so with God. Now, earlier I mentioned Psalm 118. Listen to this. Psalm 18.30. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. I mentioned that earlier. Now, Jewish Hebrew poetry has what's called parallelism, where the first part of the verse either contrasts or, or builds on. It's different kinds of parallelism. <coughs> this verse has a second piece to it. In fact, if the first part's not true, the second part's not true. So, the list God is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. And the second part says, He is a shield for those who take refuge in Him. Without the first part, you don't have the second part. Because God is perfect, because God is true, because His word and His claims and His promises are true, coming from the character and authority of God, we could take refuge in Him. That's what that verse is saying. They go hand in hand. So, inspiration leads to authority, which leads to inerrancy, can't be with error. And finally, the sufficiency of Scripture. Now, this understanding of sufficiency was articulated pretty well in the days of the Reformers. Let me read two of them to you. The Belgic Confession of 1561 says this. We believe that those holy Scriptures fully contain the will of God. And that whatsoever man ought to believe unto salvation is sufficiently taught therein. It's 1561. Another one in 1646, the Westminster Confession says this. The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deducted from Scripture Onto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether a new revelation of the Spirit or traditions of men. End quote. Where do we get that from? Second Timothy again. All Scripture is breathed out. It's, it's profitable. Teach, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness that the men of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. All 66 books of the Bible, Old and New Testament, are sufficient to equip the people of God, not for some good works, not for most good works, but for every good work. It is the complete, it is the unique, it is the sufficient word of God that equips the people of God in every situation. Again, if false teachers, false religions always want to raise their teaching above the scripture, it's not sufficient. You need me. You need this book. Whether it's Mary Baker Eddy and Christian Science, Mormons, Book of Mormons, Seventh-day Adventists, Roman Catholic Church, who, who rely on traditions and, and the authoritative teaching function of the church, we believe in sola scriptura, which means the Bible is sufficient, 2 Timothy 3.16. Now, let me give you three things and we'll wrap it up. Three things comes from James Montgomery Boyce in a wonderful book called The Gospel of Grace. He gives four things. Let me just give you three to chew on. You could talk about it in your community groups. What, are, what is the Holy Scripture? What does it mean to say that the Holy Scriptures are sufficient? Let me give you three. Number one, the Holy Scriptures is sufficient for your sanctification. Again, 2 Timothy 3. We can go all over the place, but let me just keep that. We got it open. It's, it's profitable. It's breathed out by God. Reproof. Correction, training, you may be complete and equipped. In other words, Paul instructs Timothy that the scriptures 
the word of God is used by God through the word, shaping, upholding, and, and nourishing believers for the work of the ministry and the sanctification of the church. That's what he's saying. It is a way in which God uses to make us look more like Jesus. That's what sanctification is. Jesus prays, sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. So God takes the word of God by the power of God through the spirit of God and grows us more in the likeness of Christ. Changing more as we see him more, as we read scripture more and see the beauty and incalculable worth of Jesus, we get transformed into his image and likeness through the word of God. Romans 8, for those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that we might be the firstborn among many nations. You see, Jesus taught us that the Holy Spirit was given and one of the functions is to reveal the glory, the, the main function to re- reveal the glory of Christ and to conform us to Christ. And he does that through the reading of the word, through the preaching of the word, and through the studying of the word. Holy Scripture is sufficient for sanctification. It's also sufficient for your guidance. Where the Bible speaks is only one thing to do. When it's clear, we obey. Should I forgive so-and-so? Yes, the Bible's clear. Should I love my neighbor? Yes, the Bible's clear. Should we gather together for the preaching of the word? Yes. There are responsibilities in the home the scriptures speak directly to. Husbands and wives and parents to children. How you should act on your job. Relationship between believers and civil government. How you should act on your uh, job, as I said, or in school. Some of the scriptures speak directly to that. The Roman Catholic Church would say, no, 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 no. We'll tell you what to do. We'll tell you what to think. And what we're saying is the scriptures are plain and lots of the scriptures are plain teaching us commands of God. And when there is not... We read the scriptures for the principles that God is laying down for us. It's sufficient for us. So you may not know whether you should take this job or that job. You move here, move there. Should I date? Should I, all those things, the Bible isn't clear. But there are biblical principles that guide our every step in life. Sufficient for sanctification, sufficient for guidance, and lastly, sufficient for your salvation. For evangelism. People come to repentance and faith through the word of God. As important it is to live on mission, knowing the questions, the hurts, the fears, and the idols of the culture. Ultimately, it is the word of God. It is declaring of the truth that brings people into a forgiven, reconciled relationship with God. First Peter chapter one says something that I want to read and I want you to let this sink in. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable through, how? The living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flowers of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. God causing us to be born again, becoming his children is likened to a father with his seed procreating children. The word of God is the means God uses to awaken new life. Now, Peter's not saying that the Holy Spirit discontinues to be the one, the agent, that regenerating agent. What he's saying is that the word of God is the means God uses to reveal himself and to awaken a new life. And the spirit does the regenerating work as the gospel is proclaimed. Since God is, listen, since God's word is his vocalized breath, it goes out with power, power of the Holy Spirit. The Bible itself doesn't save you. The gospel saves you. Where do you find the gospel? Not Oprah, not Colbert, not Kimmel. You can't get the gospel that way. Where has God put the gospel? He put the gospel right here. This is where the gospel is. This is where we hear God speaks. That's the question at the end of the day. So the scripture at the end of the day, has God spoken? Has God spoken? The answer is yes. Where did he speak his truth? In scripture. So the answer rests within sola scriptura, scripture alone. Do you know the one who has revealed himself through holy scripture? It is inspired. It is his authority. It has his authority over your life. And it is sufficient. I'm going to read you a story as the band comes up. And I want everybody to listen. This is the last story. It was November 1515. 
Martin Luther is the professor at the University of Wittenberg. He begins to read and expound on the book of Romans to his students. The more he studied the letter of the epistle of Romans, the more he recognized that Paul, the author of Romans, his doctrine of justification by faith was central and crucial to the whole argument of the letter of Romans. But he found himself struggling to understand it. It was not what he had been taught all those years as an Augustinian priest, monk. He describes his struggle and his dramatic conversion when the word of God, the message of the word of God became clear to his heart, to his mind, and to his soul. Martin Luther writes this. I greatly long to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans. Nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the righteousness of God. Because I took it to mean that righteousness whereby God is righteous and deals righteously in punishing the unrighteous. Night and day I pondered it until I grasped the truth that the righteousness of God is that righteousness whereby through grace and sheer mercy he justifies us by faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. All of scripture took on a new meaning and whereas before the righteousness of God has filled me with hate, Now it became to me inexpressibly sweet and greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gateway to heaven, end quote. So family, let me ask you, are we submitting to the word of God? Are we reading the word of God? Are we soaking in the word of God? Are we resting in the promises of God? Are we obeying the commands of God? Are we enjoying this wonderful gift? That God has given us as he breathed out his word. This precious gift that tells us that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. May we enjoy his word. Father, thank you for the precious gift you've given us in the Holy Scriptures. Father, we thank you that all the stories, all the beauties, all the glories in your word point to you. You are a great God who rescued us from sin, death, and hell by faith in grace through Christ for your glory. So, Father, we pray as we sing that, Lord, you would prompt in us a desire to know you greater. Lord, we come not on our own merits, but on the merit of Jesus Christ, for sure. By grace and love and mercy, we can read this book and know that our salvation is by Christ alone. By Christ alone. So, Father, help us this week particularly as we read and study, that we may see your beauty and glory in it. In Jesus' name, amen.